Tonight I'll begin a series of talks on uh, the Four Noble Truths, which is the last set of instructions the Buddha gave in the Pali version of the Satipatthana Sutta. And so this is this the instructions from the Sutta. Again, bhikkhus, just as a little footnote here, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi had made the reference that in certain contexts, bhikkhus has a larger meaning than just monks. It's often translated as monks, bhikkhunis, nuns. But Bhikkhu Bodhi said that in certain contexts, bhikkhus really refers to everyone walking on the path. So when we hear this term, we should really take it as the Buddha is addressing us. Again, bhikkhus, in regard to dhammas, that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And how does one contemplate dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths? Here one knows as it really is. This is dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the arising of dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the cessation of dukkha. And one knows as it really is. This is the way (coughs) leading to the cessation of dukkha. So these four truths... express the very essence of the Buddha's awakening. And although we are probably familiar with teachings in many different Buddhist traditions and lineages and teachings as they <coughs> move from one culture to another, all agree, all con- although there are many disagreements about things, all agree that the Four Noble Truths are the central foundation upon which awakening or realization rests. Just as the footprints of all animals can fit into the footprint of an elephant, so too whatever wholesome states there are, all of them are embraced by the Four Noble Truths. That comes from the suttas, not for me. Just as the footprint of an element, elephant can hold the footprints of all the other animals, <coughs> so all wholesome states, all that is good, can be held within the framework of the Four Noble Truths. It's not only the foundation, it doesn't only hold everything that is wholesome in our lives, Even more than that, the truths are the gateway or the opening to liberation, to freedom. But the first challenge we have when we hear these truths is understanding exactly what this Pali word dukkha means. Because in many ways, this term dukkha defines the entire spiritual path. It's about understanding dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. The problem is that there's no one English word which really conveys the range of its meaning. A very common translation of the word dukkha is suffering. which I think in one way is why in some circles Buddhism has kind of bad PR. You know, Buddhism is all about suffering. In some contexts, this translation is appropriate and it works well. But suffering as a translation for the word dukkha is not really a perfect fit. Why? In one teaching, the Buddha said, whatever is felt is dukkha. Whatever is felt is dukkha. 
But as we know from our experience, some of what we feel is really pleasant and enjoyable. We don't feel it as suffering at all. And so to say, you know, all these pleasant feelings are suffering, it doesn't quite resonate. Well, sometimes we say it's all suffering because the things are continually changing. But that also doesn't really resonate because when things change from being painful to pleasant, that doesn't feel like suffering, that feels like a relief. You know, and so the word suffering doesn't seem to correspond to our own lived experience. We might begin to get a better understanding of what dukkha means in its breadth if we look at the word etymologically. And Analyo, in his first book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, had a very uh, wonderful description of the etymology of this word dukkha, uh, which really resonated with me. He talked about how it's made up of two parts, the prefix du, du, and then the root ka. So du means bad or difficult, and ka means empty. So empty in this context means many things. This root ka is meaning empty refers to several different things, some specific and some more general. So one of the specific meanings of ka, empty, and I feel on solid ground here since I'm taking this right out of his book, (laughs) unless he's changed his mind. Ka refers in this very specific meaning to the empty axle hole of a wheel. It's that hole that the axle fits into. If the axle fits badly, do, into the hole, ka, we have du ka, which is a very bumpy ride. And I had a very visceral experience of this meaning of dukkha. This goes back many years. I was traveling with friends in Burma, and we had gone up country to visit the home monastery of Mahasi Saidao. Uh, Mahasi means big drum. That's the meaning of the word. And so there's a temple, a monastery, way, way out in the sticks of Upper Burma. Uh, with a big drum, and that's that's how he got his name. Uh, so we flew, and then we took a bus, but the last few hours of the journey was in an ox cart. Now, I know many of you have had that experience, but for those of you who haven't, <laughs> the axle doesn't fit very well into the axle hole. <laughs> it's a really bumpy ride in an ox cart. And so this was a bodily felt experience (coughs) of this first noble truth of dukkha. But in more general philosophic terms, not simply the empty axle hole of a wheel, as you know, the term empty or emptiness has very profound meanings in the Buddha's teachings. It can mean empty of permanence, devoid of permanence. It can mean empty of self, or that which is devoid of self. But there's no self that can completely control phenomena, the ungovernable nature of things. So when we understand empty in this way, the ungovernableness, 
of phenomena, we can begin to get a broader understanding of what dukkha means with different uh, translations, which are perhaps more apt. We can start understanding dukkha as meaning (coughs) unreliable, unsatisfying, uneaseful. So all of these things are quite different in connotation than suffering. Even when something is not suffering, it can be unreliable. It can be unsatisfying, it can be unfulfilling. And this is the broader meaning of dukkha and the first noble truth. So here, and this is really the important point, we can integrate the understanding that all conditioned things are dukkha, and at the same time understand that we can free our mind from suffering. Because if dukkha meant suffering, and all conditioned things are dukkha, we could never free ourselves from suffering because our minds are conditioned. But when we see, yes, all conditioned things, they have the nature to arise and pass away, they're unreliable, unfulfilling, but we can free the mind (coughs) from all those tendencies which cause suffering in the mind, even as we open to the fullness of this first noble truth. So with this clear understanding of what dukkha means, not just suffering, and that's in only certain limited cases, but unreliable, unfulfilling, unsatisfying. Then we go back to the basic instruction the Buddha gave in the Sutta regarding the first noble truth. And it's very simple. And one knows this is, this is the instruction in the sutta. And one knows, as it really is, this is dukkha. And so that's our instruction. We have to pay attention to our experience, understanding this is dukkha. But now we're faced with the second challenge. Okay, we have an understanding of what dukkha means. But our second challenge is, what exactly is the this in this is dukkha? What is the Buddha referring to when he says, and one knows as it really is, this is dukkha? What is the this? Fortunately, the Buddha gave an elaboration in the very first discourse after his enlightenment. He related what it is that is dukkha, that is unreliable, unfulfilling, (coughs) unsatisfying. So as most of you know, the Buddha awakened uh, under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya spending the next seven weeks around the tree contemplating different aspects of his realization. And then in considering who might understand these very profound and subtle teachings, he thought of the five ascetics with whom he had practiced those austerities, the ascetic discipline, you know, for six years. And they were living in a deer park in a town called, it's now called Sarnath, across the river, across the uh, Ganges from Varanasi, Benares, which was an eight-day journey on foot from Bodhgaya. So after seven weeks of just contemplating various aspects of his realization, he set off on foot to meet with these five ascetics. And the first discourse the Buddha gave was to these five companions 
And this first discourse is called Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. And I love that because I just get this image 2,600 years ago in a little deer park you know, on the banks of the Ganges River to five companions. The Buddha set this wheel of the Dharma in motion that has been rolling for 26 centuries over oceans, over continents. The wheel of the Dharma has just been rolling along and it's rolled right here to Barry, Massachusetts. <coughs> it's really quite amazing, you know, that the, the teachings have been preserved in such a beautiful and effective and meaningful way. So I, I just feel that this tremendous power when we, when we go back to that very first discourse and see that that was the beginning of the whole unfolding of the Buddha's teachings. So in it, in this first discourse, the Buddha laid out the great middle way, that is, the middle way between the extremes of self-indulgence on the one hand and self-mortification on the other. He charted the middle way. And in this first discourse, he laid out the Four Noble Truths as the framework for the next 45 years of his teachings. So this is the Buddha's description of what the this is that is dukkha. Now this bhikkhus, talking to us, is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, (coughs) grief, pain, distress, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. That's a pretty concise statement what the Buddha is including in the first noble truth. In these few lines, this Buddha is pointing to the experience of dukkha both in terms of the ordinary experiences of our life, birth, aging, death, getting what we want, not getting what we don't want, getting what we don't want, (laughs) not getting what we want. But he also expressed it in terms of a deeper, on a deeper and more comprehensive level, when he said, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. So I want to talk about a little bit about all of this as we explore what this noble truth of dukkha means for us, how we can experience it. What's interesting to me is that even with those aspects of dukkha, that are just part of the ordinary, conventional flow of our lives, how often do we actually stop and deeply reflect on them? You know, most of us, I think, we're carried along in the momentum of our busyness and just involved in relationships and work and just keeping things together How often do we just stop and settle back and really examine what is the nature of all this experience? Is it fulfilling? Is it satisfying? Or not? We're often so intent on the next hit of experience, the next thing we're going to do, the next conversation we're going to have, the next vacation we're going on, the next project we're engaged in that we don't often settle back and deeply 
consider what our lives are all about. As you know, the Buddha didn't say in any of his teachings, you must believe this. It's not the spirit of his teachings at all. And it's because of that, I think, that many of us became inspired by them. It was always an invitation to just come and see. Stop and take a look. Can we see for ourselves? Can we check these things out for ourselves to see if they're true, to see if they're meaningful? As we begin this investigation for ourselves of this first noble truth, really trying to understand why did the Buddha give so much importance to this? What does this truth of dukkha mean in our lives? There's one line from the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta that is very helpful to keep in mind in this investigation. And this line reminds us, one abides contemplating dhammas, here meaning the first noble truth, internally or externally or both. So we investigate and explore how we actually experience dukkha internally within ourselves or externally in the world. There's plenty of dukkha in the world, or both. So we can experience things as being unsatisfying or unfulfilling or unreliable and sometimes suffering in three different ways. First, there is the dukkha <coughs> of experiences which are painful in themselves. And this is where the translation of dukkha as suffering makes the most sense, when we're experiencing painful situations. In Pali, this is referred to as dukkha dukkha. And I think that's a good reminder. Yeah, this, this is painful, this is suffering. There's the inevitable pain associated with the body. Having taken birth, there is no one who escapes some physical suffering at some points in their lives. It's part of what it means to be alive. You know, it's just starting with the pain of childbirth and then illness and disease and accidents, injury, aging. This is common to us all. And probably we won't feel great, too great, at the time of death. You know, the body is decaying. It's so it most likely is not going to feel that good. There's the suffering in the world caused by war and violence, you know, especially these days when we have immediate access through media and through images and we have such immediate access to the magnitude of suffering that is going on. And sometimes it's hard to let it in. It's like we hardly know how to hold it because it can be so overwhelming. You know, there's the suffering caused by war and by violence. The suffering of hunger, you know, and natural disasters. All the suffering of political and social oppression in so many different forms. You know, of racial injustice, of homophobia, of, the list just goes on and on and on. You know, of suffering that's created in the world. This is dukkha. Dukkha as suffering, as painful experiences. And these are very real situations for hundreds of millions of people. It's not like this is, this is an isolated event. 
some is common to everyone, and other, although may not be common to everyone, is very widespread, the dukkha of painful experience. There's also the optional but deeply conditioned dukkha of our minds. Feelings of fear, of loneliness, of envy, of jealousy, of grief, of hatred, of anxiety, of frustration. And this, there's a very long list of afflictive emotions. And you've probably enjoyed a few of them just in the time you've been here. You know, the nature of our conditioned mind, the nature of our unawakened mind, it's subject you know, to, to this suffering, to the suffering of the mind, this dukkha of the mind. Now, many times when we were reporting, practicing and reporting to Saida Upandita, and we'd be going in and, at least for myself, more or less complaining about some difficult mind state. And he would just be there smiling. Oh, this is very good. You are experiencing the truth of dukkha. You know, and it reframes it. Instead of kind of getting lost in self-pity and you know, being sorry for myself and all that. No, th- we're seeing something. You know, in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, this is seeing the dukkha of the mind or the dukkha of the body. We are experiencing the first noble truth. But I think many of us would like to fully realize this first noble truth without actually feeling it. (laughs) But it doesn't work that way. It really is opening to it and recognizing it for what it is. It's not personal. This is the truth of dukkha. This is the truth of suffering, of unreliability. Here one knows as it really is, as the Buddha said. Here one knows as it really is, this is dukkha. So this is to be understood. We We have to connect with this truth. The second way we experience dukkha is not necessarily things painful in themselves, but through the direct perception of their impermanence, of their changing nature. That whatever has the nature to arise will pass away. That's just the law. That's how things are. We may not feel this particular suffering, And here's where we have to enlarge our understanding of what dukkha means. We may not feel it as suffering, but we can see with greater and greater clarity that because things are changing, they are incapable of giving us some kind of lasting happiness, some kind of lasting fulfillment, some kind of completion. And we really see this over and over and over again. Nothing can give us lasting fulfillment or peace precisely because they're not lasting. And all this truth of change, which we see over and over again in our practice, which Analyo kind of emphasized again and again in the guided meditations, seeing the arising and passing, the truth of change, this will inevitably lead us to times of association with what we don't like and separation from what we do. That's inevitable, given that things are constantly changing. Quite a few years ago, I was leading a retreat for environmental activists at a wilderness ranch in New Mexico. 
way out in, in northern New Mexico in the mountains of Vallecitos, beautiful place. On the last day of the retreat, <coughs> we, myself and all the, all the retreatants, went on a walk along the river. And in coming back, <coughs> it had just rained and the rocks were slippery. And I slipped on a rock and I hyperextended my knee. And I thought it was, I thought it would be okay. So I kind of made my way back to the lodge and that night I was giving the Dharma talk. And I had the thought, Joseph, better not to sit cross-legged. These were in the days when I was sitting cross-legged. But I just overrode the thought. So I sat down, I gave the talk. At the end of the talk, I couldn't stand. I couldn't put any weight on the knee at all. It was, I had to be carried back to where I was staying. It was a little embarrassing. But more than that, it was my mind just got so agitated. I had a whole busy summer schedule, you know, teaching schedule, traveling a lot, and there was all this worry and anxiety. How am I, what am I going to do? You know, I could, I could not walk at all. And at a certain point in the middle, of, I, was, I was up all night with this, you know, thinking and the, kind of the pain in the knee. And, but at a certain point, I got enlightened. <laughs> A mini enlightenment. <laughs> this little mantra came into my mind, which changed everything. It said, anything can happen anytime. Anything can happen anytime. That's just the nature of things. And it was so interesting. It just reframed everything. Because before that, I was berating myself, and I was so careless, and why did I slip, and what am I going to do, and worry, and just all of that. But when I had that little insight, it's, this is just the na- anything can happen anytime. Things are changing. We don't have control over what's going to happen. The surprising aspect of that mantra for me was that instead of it creating a sense of you know, fear and paranoia and defensiveness, oh my God, anything can happen anytime. It was exactly the opposite. It's like the heart relaxed. It just understood, yes, this, this is just the nature of change. Things happen. And everything got easeful. I still had to work out you know, how I was going to manage, but the mind was at peace because it could accept the very obvious truth that anything can happen anytime. And when we, when we take that in, when we take in that awareness of change on that level, <coughs> then we can actually relax behind it and understand even when things don't go the way we want, yes, this is, this is just how things are and we understand it. What's so interesting, this is not difficult to understand on a conceptual level. We all know that things change all the time. And yet somehow we haven't translated it, or we haven't integrated it really deeply or completely into the way we're living. And so this is part of our practice in, in the contemplation of the dhammas, in the contemplation of the body, in all of the satipatthanas, we just see <coughs> the truth of change. And in seeing that, we understand this second dimension of dukkha, the unreliability, the insecurity of conditioned phenomena. There's nothing in what arises that we can uh, hold on to for security. Why? Because it's changing. You know, sometimes I think, I imagine the Buddha speaking, not to his advanced disciples, but kind of to people like us. (laughs) Sometimes I imagine it's like speaking to a group of second graders. Okay, don't kill, and don't steal, and everything changes, <laughs> so don't hold on. 
the truths the truths are so obvious <laughs> but we have to take them in in a new way in a deeper way we have to we have to get it from the inside not simply you know as an intellectual understanding Now, in all of our efforts, to escape dukkha by looking for pleasant experiences, how many pleasant experiences have we had in our lives? Countless. I mean, most of us are very fortunate. We have countless, countless, countless pleasant experiences. But where are they now? You know, they've just come and gone, like everything. And so we know this truth, but we have to, we really have to reflect on it and see it and connect with it in a way that transforms our lives. Now this doesn't mean necessarily, and this is especially for lay people, it doesn't mean that we should never enjoy ourselves or enjoy pleasant experience because pleasant experiences will be there. They're part of life as well. It's just to realize the very transitory nature of them. So we're not looking to them for that happiness, for that peace that we may aspire to. Now, there are some powerful reflections which remind us of the impermanence of things, which can help uh, bring this understanding to life as we reflect on them. And these are classical, these are classical reflections. That all times of being together with someone will end in separation, one way or another. You know, people drift apart, or they move apart, or one person dies. Inevitably, all coming together will end in separation. So again, this isn't a mistake. This is just the nature of things. It's the nature of change. All accumulation ends in dispersion. You know, how much, especially in our culture, how much emphasis is, is put on accumulating things. And yet, whatever we accumulate is eventually going to be dispersed. We're not going to take these things to our next life. And all life ends in death. You know, our life is just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and it's running out. It's, it's like we're all in the queue of death. You know, and we're all moving up the queue. Sometimes, sometimes I have that, that image, if, like if I'm going to the movies and there's a long line. And I just think, that, oh yeah, this is, this is exactly... Mm, mm, mm. And at the moment of death, what really belongs to us? So again, none of, none of this is like new information. Right? All of these are the very obvious truths of our lives. But it's really very often only in contexts like this, which is rare. You know, not many people take their two-week vacation to be on a meditation retreat. So there's something going on here. You know, there's really, in, in everyone here, there's clearly a very strong commitment to seeing, to understanding, you know, or you wouldn't be here. And it's in this context where we can kind of stop and see and consider and reflect on these very basic and obvious truths, but see them and feel them in a very different way. And what's surprising 
is that the more we open to the truth of dukkha, to the dukkha that is suffering, the painful experiences that inevitably come at times, and the unreliability or the unsatisfying nature even of pleasant things because they're changing, the more we see it, the more we open to it, the lighter we feel. It's so paradoxical. The more we open to dukkha, the happier we are. Because we're not fighting with reality, we're actually connecting with how things are. So there's the experience of dukkha dukkha, and that's, that's suffering, that's things that are painful. There's the unsatisfying nature of things which are continually changing. The third experience of dukkha, uh, we could call it becoming more attuned to the burdensomeness of conditioned existence. In Pali it's called Sankara dukkha. And just think of what's needed just to fulfill the basic needs of life. You know, working for food, for water, for shelter, for medicine. Now for many of us, these things may come reasonably easily, but for vast numbers of people, even these basic things, are very difficult to come by. Now, for hundreds of millions of people, not, it's not just a few, just having clean water, or having enough food, or having medicine. So there's, there's a quality, there's, there's that quality of effort needed just simply to sustain life. There's the effort to take care of the body, you know, it was <laughs> I loved the first day's teachings on the anatomical parts and the asuba, and then seeing all the reactions, and <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> How beautiful would the body be if you didn't bathe for a month? Oh, all of a sudden, this beautiful body doesn't seem so beautiful. And it, I mean, the be- even if we consider, yeah, at times and from certain perspectives, you know, we might take it as beautiful, it's very, very contingent on a lot of things. It's not really beautiful in itself. It needs this tremendous amount of care and upkeep just to be presentable, much less beautiful. <laughs> So this is a kind of dukkha. We, just, you know, we have to keep doing this again and again. <laughs> Some years ago, I was watching this documentary. It was a David Attenborough, a Planet Earth. Or maybe some of you have seen it. Beautiful nature photography. And this one episode that I was watching, it was showing... the tremendous effort some species of birds made to attract a mate. And there were these incredible filming of, you know, the mating dances, a very energetic, and the big feather displays, you know, the males. <laughs> and, and the one that really got to me was uh, some species, there was a nest building competition the males had to build these nests and then the female would choose which one they liked the best. And you could see, that it was amazing how they filmed this. And, and the birds were putting, they were putting so much effort into the creation of these nests. And then you see these poor birds who kind of lost the competition, <laughs> you know, after all this effort. <laughs> this is Sankara Dukkha. <laughs> So I call this, and I'm on dangerous ground here because I know there are a couple of physicists in the room, but I call this the Buddhist equivalent 
of the second law of thermodynamics, which says, (laughs) as I understand it, all systems uninfluenced by outside forces tend to disorder. The movement is to disorder unless energy is put into the system. So that means just in order to sustain life, we have to keep putting energy into the system. And even then, in the end, entropy always wins. You know, so it gives us a sense on just that very basic level of another kind of dukkha, just the, the effort needed just to keep this whole show going. So in order to accomplish a fuller understanding of this first noble truth, we need to explore and investigate and reflect on all of these different aspects in our lives. You know, it's not enough to hear this and then, oh yeah, dukkha, the first, first kind of dukkha is you know, suffering, second kind is impermanence, third is the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> no, I, then, it, then we're just collecting knowledge. We have to take each one of these and really reflect what does this mean in my life? How am I experiencing this? Can I really experience the dukkha in each of these arenas? So there's an active participation that's really required for us to realize this first noble truth. And it would be interesting, even when we hear the teachings and hear the word dukkha, and maybe a hearing about the first noble truth, what's our immediate association with it? Is our immediate association limited to suffering? Because it's been taught that way a lot. But we should notice if it is, because then we're going to have a very limited understanding of what dukkha means. It's not just suffering. It's not just things painful in themselves. It has this much broader and more expansive and comprehensive meaning. And this is what we have to understand. And we have to see it. We have to experience it in ourselves. There's a great British Buddhist scholar. His name is Rupert Gethin. And he wrote something very apt about all this. He said, understanding the first noble truth involves not so much the revelation that dukkha exists as the realization of what dukkha is. And I think that really highlights our task. So we can all acknowledge that dukkha exists. We really have to explore what it is in our lives. Okay, so the Buddha helps us even further in, his real, in our realization of this first noble truth when he's describing it in that sutta setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. He goes through all those specific you know, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, grief, lamentation, all of that. And then he says, in short, Dukkha is these five aggregates subject to clinging. So he takes it out of the realm of the specific experiences we may go through and is pointing to these very five aggregates that comprise what we call our being. These five aggregates subject to clinging are Dukkha. And so part of our practice and will be, have been doing this and will be continuing to do, to look at this very fundamental basic level. Because contained in this one line, it is in short the five aggregates subject to clinging. 
just in that one short line, is the whole of samsara conditioning. We can, we can understand all of samsara, the unfolding of it, in the context of the five aggregates subject to clinging. And then by implication, an understanding of the remaining three noble truths, which is what make li- makes liberation possible. doing an internal edit. (laughs) Practicing these instructions regarding the Four Noble Truths, and in this particular case, the First Noble Truth, Truth of Dukkha, has two great consequences or results. Not only is it the gateway to freedom, you know, it's the fact that we have to understand dukkha and the clinging, the craving that is the cause of it, as the gateway to understanding letting go, to understanding freedom. But the realization of dukkha the deepening realization of it also opens the door to compassion. And there's a very intimate connection between this first noble truth, the realization of it, and the nurturing and flourishing of compassion in our lives. This compassion is that feeling in the heart that wants to help others and ourselves be free of dukkha. Certainly be free of the suffering aspect and ultimately be free of all aspects. The Buddha was so motivated by compassion to help get at the very causes of dukkha. This feeling of compassion is expressed beautifully in just a short poem by Ryokan, who was this great Japanese hermit, monk, poet, you know, he lived up in the mountains, he had almost nothing, he was really poor, but he just wandered the mountains, you know, playing with the village children, and his poetry is is just beautiful, and he he was, he was a Zen master, you know, he was this amazing being, but he lived so simply and so in contact just with the ordinary humanity, you know, uh, the people living in those simple villages. And one of his famous, one of his famous short poems, which expresses this feeling of compassion. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. You know, it's just kind of that sense of expansiveness that understands dukkha, that understands the universality of it. It's not personal. It's the nature of things. You know, and so it, it, when, we, when we open to it, when we see it, then it opens us to this feeling, oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. Understanding the first noble truth is the practice of compassion because it is the practice of letting things in. You know, it's letting people in, it's letting in all parts of ourselves. We're no longer running away from dukkha. We're no not longer trying to keep it out. Our practice is to let it in. And it's in that letting in that we see the great commonality you know, of, of our experience. And this, this also is expressed beautifully in a, in a haiku poem by Isa. Uh, he was an 18th century, you know, wonderful haiku poet. He said, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. 
you know, and again, it's that same sense of inclusiveness that comes from the understanding of the universality of this truth. So the Buddha concluded his teaching on the Four Noble Truths. This is at the end of that first discourse. He said, this is the noble truth of dukkha. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the light that arose in me concerning things not heard before. This dukkha as a noble truth should be fully realized. And he went on to say, this dukkha as a noble truth has been fully realized. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the light that arose in me concerning things not heard before. So this is not an insignificant undertaking. You know, it's very easy that we get caught up in our own little ups and downs and stories and dramas and difficulties and all of that is just part of the path, but it's part of something much, much larger. All of our work is really about opening to these very profound and noble truths. And the first of which is understanding this is the noble truth of dukkha. This is the work that we're doing. Tomorrow night, we'll explore the causes of dukkha. So, I had intended this morning to just have a little time for questions you know, after the instructions. Uh, but the room was so quiet. <laughs> you know, I just, just didn't want to disturb it. So then I thought, well, after the talk, maybe we'll have some questions. <laughs> the room is so quiet. <laughs> but it, first to say, as Analyo <laughs> said each evening, maybe we'll just take you know, a short time for a few questions about practice or anything in the talk, not not wildly theoretical ones. Uh, but if you'd like to, to keep the silence, please, you know, you're, you're very free to get up and uh, do some walking meditation. But this is not going to be an hour session. So we'll just take a short while. So if anybody has any questions, either about the morning instructions or anything I mentioned uh, this evening. Yeah. Okay, so the question was how the instruction this morning, there is a body, could fit in with yoga, anything, you know, with... It, it fits beautifully, and, and I really used that phrase a lot in my practice, doing lots of things, not in the sitting, in the walking, in various activities, in yoga, because it just provides a grounding framework of mindfulness in which we can be aware, or within which we can be aware of whatever else is arising. So if you're in a yoga posture and just, you know, in a very soft, very soft way, just remind, oh, there is a body, and then being aware in whatever posture you're in, what is the felt experience of being in that posture? And so the mind is not narrowing down on any particular sensation. You're holding the framework, not just there is a body, but within it, open to whatever it is you're feeling. Is it on? Uh, I was just wondering if you feel particular asanas complement the notion I'm, of the whole body. I mean, or I'm, I'm, particular I'm, techniques in yoga. Uh, I've done a little yoga practice, but I'm not. I'm not a, you know, an expert in yoga. Uh, but from the perspective of 
from the side of meditation, it's all equal because we take whatever our experience is, you know, whether it's in yoga or anything else, and hold it in the container of awareness. Now, a yoga teacher might have, you know, particular uh, postures or asanas that do particular things that I'm not, I'm not familiar with. Although I, I was told one quite amazing yoga story. I was teaching in Texas and talking about sloth and torpor and how, you know, it's common people fall asleep. And this yoga teacher said that he once fell asleep standing on his head. (laughs) That was impressive. (laughs) An impressive manifestation of sloth and torpor. The question was a a little refresher course on the five aggregates. Um, That's a big topic. And it's all in my book. (laughs) And in the morning instructions, not tomorrow, but the next day, I'm going to highlight some aspects of working with the aggregates that just were particularly interesting to me. Uh, So we'll address it you know, in that context of uh, the morning instructions, yeah. But just just as a, a reminder of what they are, you know, it's just the physical elements, the material elements, called rupa, vedana, which we've worked with a lot, just that taste of things being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, perception, Volition, and it's this, it's this fourth aggregate, uh, which in some descriptions just include all of the other mental qualities aside from feeling and perception, which were singled out to be their own aggregates. But there's also some discussion of what that fourth aggregate is. And then consciousness is the fifth aggregate. And I'm going to be talking... There's some really interesting ways to work with seeing the non-self in different of these aggregates in ways that we often miss. You know, um, so when one is um, goes into a period of like seeing sort of the endlessness over and over again quality of experience, and you even see how it colors perception. What is the best way to work with that? What kind of dukkha is it? Well, that that, that could well be part of the sex seeing, just seeing the changing nature and the unsatisfying nature of things which are continually changing and disappearing. This, it's like there's no place to land. Uh, and seeing the dukkha, seeing experiencing the dukkha of that really is the uh, a powerful force for the development of disenchantment and dispassion you know, all the things Nalayo has been talking about which lead to nibbana which lead to peace because we're not we're, not, we're no longer so seduced uh, so is it better to just hang with it or Try to work it like. Try to work with the different tools that he gave us to um, move out of it. Those two things sound like the same thing to me. I mean, being with it in a wise way, which is without aversion and without getting caught up, but with the clear seeing. And in the clear seeing, the mind will naturally come to a kind of dispassion. You know, it's the seeing of that which leads to, uh, or deconditions the grasping. 
So not trying to do anything. No, yeah. Yes. Don't try to do anything. <laughs> but but be seeing clearly. But it, it can be helpful. I, I really appreciated uh, Analio's last set of instructions on the impermanence, dispassion, cessation, letting go. Uh, because again, I, I also had read that a million times. But in the way that you know, he was leading us and guiding us, really taking it as instruction rather than a description. And it, it was quite powerful. So, okay, so in seeing the impermanence, which you're describing, you might just hold in mind uh, or, or explore in the seeing of the see how that leads to dispassion. So you actually have it in mind, you know, and that, that can kind of call it forth. Uh, Thank you. Okay. <laughs> this is just so sweet. <laughs> it's great. So please continue your practice. It's. Uh, as you know, I'm just, it's an exceedingly precious time, you know, and it goes really quickly. And somehow you've managed to carve this time out for yourselves. Uh, and it's a tremendous blessing. Uh, so just use the time well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.